Well, again, good morning. Great to see you this morning. My name is George Davis. Thanks for being a part of our services this morning as we continue the series entitled Follow. This is the part of the service where we take time to look at different sections of Scripture, and we're in the series where we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And if you have a Bible, then I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. At some point in life, you've, you've had an experience that goes something like this. You were, you were interested in a job. You thought this would be a great step for you. Maybe you, you applied for the job, and maybe there was a, even a, like a formal interview process, and you went through that. Maybe even got to another round, but, but, you know, even though you were excited about it, at some point you got the phone call, you got the message, the email that said, We've had a lot of applicants, and we just want you to know you're no longer part of the process. Or maybe you've had a situation where you were called in to see your boss or called in to see a supervisor, and somewhere in that conversation, he looked at you, she looked at you, and said, well, we're now going in a different direction. And what that meant was this job for you was now coming to an end. Maybe, and I have lots of experiences like this, maybe at some point you were applying to different academic programs. And once you applied, you were waiting for the contact or waiting for the mail. And, And when I went through that season of life, one of the things I learned was bad news always comes in small envelopes. Good news comes in big packets. If you were turned down, it would just be a simple two-paragraph letter that came in a small envelope. If you were accepted, that'd be this big application packet. Some of you have known that experience. Maybe in in your school environment, maybe even in your family environment, there have been times where you realize there are the people around you and, and you thought you were good friends with all of them, but somehow at times you were the one being left out when things happened, when things got together. Maybe there was some kind of relationship in your life, some important relationship in your life, and, and over time you realize, I'm investing a lot more in this than this other person. You, you were committed to it, but, but they weren't. These are all very different scenarios, but what they have in common is the theme of rejection. And let's just be open with one another um, I think in different ways we want to be liked. We want the approval of others. That's that's natural. It's part of what it means to be human. So what that means is, I think for, for most of us, one of our biggest fears is the fear of rejection. Likewise, even as as we can experience that rejection in different kinds of relationships and settings, for those of us that are that are followers of Christ, perhaps there have been Moments where you felt like, you know, my, my commitment to Christ has just created a sense where I'm out of step with, with people in my family, in my community, in my school. At times that can be awkward. Maybe even as you just pay attention to broader cultural trends, and as many have observed, our, our culture seems to be moving in a more pluralistic or post-Christian direction. So at times you just kind of feel even out of step culturally. And once again, it's this theme of, of rejection. But here's the question. What 
what if the power of rejection could be disarmed? What if the fear of rejection could be removed? Now, keeping those kind of questions in mind, let's now come to the opening part of Mark chapter 6. As we come to Mark chapter 6, we're not going to look at all of it, but we're going to look at the opening three scenes of this chapter. And these are very different scenes, but what they have in common is the theme of rejection. So as we start, look at the the opening part of Mark chapter 6, and here we see kind of the reality of rejection, particularly in Jesus' own life. Mark Chapter 6, verses 1 and following. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that he's been given? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Now, already as we follow the narrative up to this point, as Mark is recounting the story of Jesus, we've seen him travel already through Galilee, and he's got disciples, and they've been part of what Jesus has been doing. He's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been casting out demons. And and undoubtedly, news has spread to this small, nondescript hometown that he had, the town of Nazareth. And now Jesus goes back to his hometown, this small village. And I'm sure there had to be a great deal of curiosity, right? The little kid we knew growing up, now he's creating all this stir in our surrounding regions. And there had to be a great deal of curiosity. And as as we have seen elsewhere, we are told people were amazed at him. Yet by the time, (laughs) by the time the scene is over, we, we kind of get stuck on this phrase, and they took offense at him. Now, notice a couple of things about this scene. One of the things that may surprise you a little bit is this idea that, well, Jesus was unable to do miracles there. Now, when Mark says that, it's a reminder that the miracles in Jesus' life weren't simply displays of raw power. They were intended to be signs. They 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 were signs that the promises of God were being fulfilled, that what Jesus described as the kingdom of God, he was now bringing into play, and through his authority, He was healing people. These were signs of that authority. And yet we also see that that these miracles were responses to faith. And and faith was clearly lacking here. So Jesus doesn't do a lot of miracles here. And interestingly, at the start of this scene, we see that the people are amazed at Jesus. By the end of the scene, Jesus is amazed at the people because of their Lack of faith. But once again, think about that phrase, they took offense at him. You, you can almost translate it this way, they were, they were scandalized by him. Now, why was that? Well, I think on one level, they were challenged by his message. As we 
when we look at this scene, not only in Mark's gospel, but also in Luke's gospel, I think there's the implication that at some level these people were offended by the fact that his, his message was inclusive. It wasn't just about um, the deliverance of Jews. It was a, a message that had hope for Jews and Gentiles. So in different ways they were offended by his message, but I think they were also offended by his authority. He spoke with such authority about what God was now doing through him. And, and, and you know, the, once again, it's this little nondescript village. And it's like, wow. When did he get the big head after leaving here? I mean, this is the, we grew up with this. And, of course, we're, we're, we're giving clues now that he actually had brothers and sisters, right? You could hear them. Wait a minute. What is the deal here? I know we played hide-and-seek when we grew up, and I knew you were pretty good at hiding, but that doesn't mean you're the son of God. Just because you always won, right? Come on, who is this guy? And isn't this Mary's son? Didn't he just grow up right over there? And they took offense at him. And they couldn't accept that this was the way God was working. Now, here, here's what I think, here's part of what's interesting here. Isn't it the case sometimes we feel like, you know, Christianity has nothing to do with the everyday, ordinary world, right? Sometimes it feels that way. Christianity doesn't have anything to do really with everyday, ordinary life. But notice in this scene, Jesus is actually being criticized for being too ordinary. Jesus, you're, you're one of us. You, you can't be doing the things that you claim to be doing. And yet in this scene, in a powerful way, we are being confronted with the reality of Jesus' humanity. So Jesus is rejected. Now, notice one, something else. I'm not sure if you paid attention to this. But by the time we get to this, this scene in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark, if you've been reading along, if you've been kind of using our devotional guide, which I hope you're using, if you've, if you've been kind of reading along, by this time, you may have noticed that Jesus has managed to offend just about everybody. Have you noticed that? Did you realize Jesus was an equal opportunity offender? Really? I mean, by this time, he has already, right, offended all stripes of the elite of his society. On, on the one hand, he, he has offended the cultural and political right, right? The Pharisees, those who, who wanted to kind of preserve their rich heritage and culture, those that were concerned about the intrusiveness of Roman society. He has offended them. We've also seen that he has offended the, the cultural and political left. We have reference, right, to the Herodians. These would have been people that kind of endorsed the current status quo. They were more progressive in their ideas. They were open to the influence of Rome. Let's just figure out how we can work with them. So Jesus, by this moment, has offended all the political and cultural spectrum of the elites. And now we get to this chapter and we see he's not simply offending the elite level of culture. He's offending ordinary people as well. And I think, among other things, what this shows us is this. The gospel does not fit neatly into any political party, any political identity, or any particular cultural moment. In some ways, the gospel always confronts us. 
After all, remember how Jesus is introduced to us, right? What the first words, right, we hear from Jesus. He challenges us to, to repent, to turn, and believe the good news. And in those words, he's, whether we realize it or not, he is confronting us. He is exposing us. He is, he is exposing our brokenness, our sin, our imperfection. And in a real sense, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. The gospel is bad news in that it exposes us. It says there's no place to hide. This is who you are. But the gospel exposes us so that it confront us, not simply with the depth of our sin, but also the depth of God's grace. Right? That's, that's the good news. And I think in exposing us, the gospel also exposes our idols. And exposing us, the gospel exposes those things that I'm clinging to to make life work on my own. Those things that I have made into the center of my life. The gospel exposes that perhaps which is a good thing in my life that I have now made an ultimate thing from family to achievement to possessions. Whatever that might be. And, and Jesus says, look, you, you've got to turn from that so that you can believe and trust in me. And, and what this means is this, to, to grab hold of God's grace, to live in God's grace, I've got to let go of something else, whatever that something else may be. Along those lines, I, I love this fascinating statement in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, right? As long as I'm, as long as I'm holding on to this, whatever this may be, I can't grab hold of this the reality of the gospel, the reality of God's love. So to grab hold of the gospel, to live in the gospel always means I've got to let go of something else. And this is, this is the offense of the gospel to many. And so in this passage, we see Jesus is being rejected. And as, the, as we move to the next scene, we, we, we are confronted with the truth that it, this rejection isn't simply going to be unique to Jesus. It will also be part of the experience of those who choose to follow. So he prepares his followers for rejection. There's a preparation for rejection. Notice as the passage continues beginning in verse 7. Calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick with oil and healed them. So once again, right, Jesus is traveling around Galilee. He's been doing this with his disciples. But now notice, now he's going to send them out on their own. And this shouldn't surprise us because we've already been told that, they, you know, that, that when it comes to his followers, Jesus draws you in to be with him, but then he sends you out. That, that's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ, you need to understand this is, 
This is, this is part of who we are. We are. We're being drawn into relationship with Christ, but also so that we can be an ongoing part of that mission. That's not for a chosen few. That's for all of us who claim the name of Christ. And notice then, so Jesus is preparing them to be sent out. And notice he tells them two things. First, he tells them what to take. Then he tells them what to expect, right? And as you look at this, you'll see they, they are... They are told to travel light. Now, this may surprise us. In fact, this may seem to be irresponsible. And, and one of the things we need to realize is that in this cultural context, hospitality would have just been expected in all the villages um, that they would have gone to. That would have just been a natural expectation. So it, it, that takes a little bit of the edge off of this, of this statement. But I still think we read this and go, he's sending them out unprepared. I mean, let's be honest, when you and I, when we travel, right, don't we prepare ourselves, we take what we need to take or whatever. I'm actually been traveling a couple of days this week, and of course, I'll, I'll check the weather where I'm going before I leave just to make sure I pack the appropriate clothing. So what exactly was Jesus doing when he just says, okay, go, don't take a lot with you, just go. Well, among other things, I think he was encouraging a sense of urgency. Interestingly, I actually think as the disciples heard the words of Jesus, because they were familiar with the Hebrew Bible, that what may have echoed in their mind is a scene from Exodus chapter 12, when the, right, when the nation of Israel is now being liberated from Egypt and they're being sent out, and they're told, they're told the very same thing, pack light. And so in a real sense, even as there was urgency as the people of Israel were leaving captivity and, and entering freedom and experiencing liberation. Now there's a sense of urgency as this group of disciples is being sent out on a new and ultimate mission of liberation. There's a, there's a sense of urgency in, in what Jesus is saying. But not only is there a sense of urgency, I think there's also a sense of dependence, right? In essence, Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out. You're going to be traveling light, but your needs will be taken care of. Trust me. So they go out. And I do think for us as, as followers of Christ, there is once again, there's something to be learned here. And as I read this, I have to, to acknowledge that it, if I'm not careful, right, the stuff in my life, whatever that may be, the busyness of my life, sometimes drains me of that sense of urgency. It drains me of that sense of dependence. And so we have to, you know, we really got, you know, I, I have to kind of, kind of wrestle even as I read this with, am I, you know, and how I handle my resources and how I handle my time and my focus. Am I, is there a sense of urgency in my life that I'm a part of this bigger mission of what Jesus is doing? Is there a sense of dependence? Because that is how Jesus is sending them out. So he tells them what to take. Notice he also tells them what to expect. Right, he's going to send them out to continue. He's going, he's going to send them out to now do the things that he has been doing. He's gone out, he's healed, he's cast out demons, he's preached this message. Now they're going out to expand the mission. But he also tells them, right, some will accept, others won't. Even as he has just been rejected, they will experience something similar as well. And so for us, once again, I think the takeaway is, 
as we embrace what it means to be a follower of Christ and, and just live out our faith at times, we may experience rejection. Now, I want to say this carefully because here's the problem. If we are not careful, we can use scenes like this in the Bible. We can use scenes that, where we see rejection. We can use scenes that talk about suffering. We can use these scenes as an excuse for being an obnoxious Christian. <laughs> and understand this clearly. Jesus is preparing his followers for rejection. He is not authorizing them to be jerks. Okay? He is, he is preparing them for rejection, but he is not authorizing them to be jerks. And this is, I think this is where we get stuck sometimes. And sometimes we, you know, we see the experience of the disciples and we say, well, that's just happening to me too. But in reality, I'm also being a jerk. I'm also being an obnoxious. And, I, I, you know, and so I, even as I was preparing this week, I, I started wrestling with, well, how do I know if I've crossed this line from, from you know, seeking just to live out my faith and my sphere of influence and in the course of everyday relationships? How do I don't know if I've crossed the line from doing that to really being just an obnoxious Christian? Now, I don't have any simple answers for you to describe the line, but I did have some interesting conversation during the week about this. In fact, I uh, had several conversations where I asked people to fill in this blank. I said, you might be an obnoxious Christian if fill in the blank. There's an interesting conversation starter, by the way, for lunch if your conversation grows dull. Just throw that out and see how people respond. So I had some conversation with people about, you know, that you might, be an obser you might be an obnoxious Christian if, and fill in the blank. And we also, I don't know if you realize this, we, we've got now a Facebook group so that we can have these kinds of conversations, and we put this up, and some of you responded, so thank you for that. And so through those conversations and posts, here were just some things that I heard. <laughs> you might be an obnoxious Christian if you refuse to listen. Right? If you were known for talking to people, but not actually hearing them. You might be an obnoxious Christian if, I love this, at a restaurant you leave a gospel track, but not a tip. Oh, that's right. That's right. Now we can close in prayer. We'll just leave it right, right. Amen. He that has an ear, let him hear on that one. Okay. You might be an obnoxious Christian if you view people as projects. You might be an obnoxious Christian if your social media posts are always in all caps. <laughs> you might be an obnoxious Christian if people around you seem to be walking on eggshells trying to measure up to your expectations. Now, in contrast to, to really being an obnoxious Christian, I think notice what Jesus is doing. Right, he is sending them out to continue his mission, which he's sending them out to teach. But as we see, they also are going to heal. They're also going to cast out demons. They're, they're in essence, also going out, they're going out to address people's problems. They're going out to serve. And he says, as you do that, you must understand not everyone will receive your message well. 
And the truth would be, people are going to be, they're going to appreciate what you're doing as you come to serve, but as they, they hear your message, some will choose not to accept. And there's, I think there's a tension here that we need to pay attention to. Some, you know, they're going to be appreciative of, of what you're doing, even as they have appreciated what Christ is doing, and yet when they hear the message, they may choose to reject it. There, there's a tension here. I, I think a, a New Testament author who has grabbed hold of this tension is a guy by the name of J.P. Meyer who's written this. In a ministry of two or three years, Jesus, notice this, attracted and infuriated his contemporaries, mesmerized and alienated the ancient world, unleashed a movement that has done the same ever since, and so changed the course of history forever. I love the way he phrases that, right? It's like they're going out there, there's an attracting and infuriating, there's a mesmerizing and alienating. And I think that captures what was going on here. In a real sense, as these guys went out, they were attractive and offensive. And as we follow the history of early Christianity, this is exactly what we see. On the one hand, as the message of Christianity would, would ultimately spread through the Greco-Roman world, it, it would come up against barriers because in the Greco-Roman world, the general expectation was when it comes to gods and deities, the more the merrier. As, as new groups were assimilated into the Roman Empire, new people groups, new city-states, new regions, we just, welcome, we just welcome all the gods and just continue to add them to the list. And in the midst of that came this message of Jesus Christ, of Christianity, that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. It was a radically exclusive message, which easily offended at times people who heard it. Yet the amazing thing was it was also this group of people that had the pattern of reaching out to help and to serve like no other groups. Particularly in the first four centuries of Christian history, there's these amazing moments where it was the Christians that were responding to the plagues. It was the Christians who were responding to those in need. It was the Christians who were responding to the poor and the hurting. So what we see is this radically inclusive group of people preaching a radically exclusive message. It was attractive and defensive. And, 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 and for us, I think it, it, this, this passage then generates certain diagnostic questions that we just need to ask ourselves. One is, you know, am I attractive but not offensive? Right? Do I enjoy other people, enjoy what I do, enjoy the people around me, want to help, I want to be a good friend, but I'm not really open to living out my faith and I'm never willing even to acknowledge that I am a follower of Christ. Never willing to take that risk. Am I attractive but not offensive? On the other hand, am I offensive but not attractive? It seems like I'm always in conflict, always willing to debate or clashing with people about beliefs and ideas. I'm just maybe just a difficult person. People don't enjoy being around me, and, and maybe it's the case that it's not really my message that's offensive, it's, it's me. So Jesus says, look, I'm, I, you know, we see Jesus has experienced this. He says, look, I'm sending you out. If you're my follower, you're going to be part of this, and, and that journey of following me means you, you're to be both attractive and offensive. I'm sending you out to minister, to serve, but 
recognize not everyone will receive that message. And very quickly, let, let me just, at a, a practical level, just mention three things. Some, if you're taking notes, let me just highlight just a couple of things that, that I would say. How do we do this well? I think first we need to be authentic. Right? We need to be authentic. Unfortunately, in some Christian circles, you get the idea, right, that every Christian has to fit into a box. We kind of have to look the same, think the same, act the same, like the same things. And, 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 and what, what's missing there is really living out my faith in, in the manner that God has created me. We need, to, we need to be authentic. I think, secondly, we need to practice hospitality. We need to practice hospitality. A hallmark of Jesus' ministry was hospitality. Remember, he was criticized for what? Eating with tax collectors and sinners. Even when, even, right, even, even this gift that he gave us to celebrate, we, we talk about the Lord's Supper, about communion, right? It's, it's, in, it's an act of hospitality. Practicing hospitality, I think, makes, means taking time to get to know people, to listen to hear their story, to invite them into your life, to have them over. Be authentic, practice hospitality, and, and, and thirdly, and perhaps foundationally, be gospel-centered. You know, one of the amazing things about the good news of Christ is this. When I am rooted in the gospel, when I'm rooted in this new relationship that I now have with Christ, the gospel has an amazing ability in my life to produce both boldness and humility. Isn't that amazing? Did you realize that? I mean, when we are rooted in the good news of Christ, when more and more, you know, we understand ourselves in light of who God is and what he's doing through Christ, over time what that will produce, it will produce a boldness, but it will also produce humility. It will produce the boldness, just the, the confidence and the reality of who God is, Right? And when you have that confidence of God's faithfulness to his promises, what he's doing, there's a freedom and a boldness that just comes with us. This is what we see in the book of Acts, right? These early falls of Christ. People looked at him and go, they're not educated at all, but my goodness, they're really bold, right? Because God's spirit, as the gospel was taking root, it just produces a boldness to just to live out our faith and conversations and how we engage others in a way that there's a boldness. But there's also a humility over time that should result as the gospel takes root. A humility that more than anything moves me beyond myself so that I can truly be for other people. Right? Because to be a recipient of God's grace is to be an agent of that grace. And you know, church, that's what we should be known for, right? Wouldn't it be great if people around here said, you know, I'm not sure I really agree with that church, that Hershey Free Church, but you know, the people there know how to love others. There's something going on there where there's something that is of benefit to our community. And, and I think as, as we are rooted in the gospel, there's just, it, it will produce boldness and humility. It will, it will enable us really to experience what Jesus was preparing the disciples to experience, that we will be attractive in how we engage other people. But the truth is, at times, other people will choose not to accept the message. So Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, this is what's happening to me. Now I'm also preparing you as well. And very quickly, there's one other thing I want you to notice. It comes in the last story, and it's, it's, it's hope for the rejected. 
I'm not going to take time to read this story, but let me summarize it for you well. In this last scene, in, uh, in the third of these three scenes, we see John the Baptist again. Remember, we saw him earlier in the book. He's the prophet that baptized Jesus, that announced Jesus is coming. Now we see John, and he's in hot water. He has, uh, he's offended Herod Antipas. Now, this is where the New Testament can become confusing because you keep reading about Herod this, Herod that. And you need to understand that there was Herod the Great, kind of he's the patriarch of the family. And in the New Testament, we actually encounter three subsequent generations of Herod's royal family. This is Herod Antipas. He was one of Herod the Great's sons. So this is part of that next generation. And Herod the Great, or excuse me, Herod Antipas actually took one of his brother, other brother's wives, Herodias. And John the Baptist challenged him on that. And so he's arrested. And, and interestingly, even in, even in John's life, we see kind of even a, an interesting example of being both offensive and attractive. Because John had ticked Herod off when he's confronting him about, you know, his, his lifestyle and the choices he's made. But even here, we get the feeling that there was something about John that was attractive to Herod. He was still mesmerized by this guy's message and interacting with him. But Herodias would have none of it. And so she works and ultimately pursues an opportunity in her anger to have John executed. And that's exactly what happens. And the story ends with, with John's followers coming to take his body and bury it. <laughs> and you say, okay, so where's the hope in that? And this will happen to you too. No, I... <laughs> now, here's what's interesting about this, this scene. Now, if you're going through John with us, I mean, if you're going through Mark with us, you'll notice that, that over and over again, Mark is just moving from story to story. I mean, it, this book is rapid fire. Immediately this happened. And lots of different scenes, lots of short scenes in this book. But of all the scenes in Mark's gospel, this is the only scene that doesn't include Jesus. Jesus is missing from this part of the story. But even though he's not directly in the narrative, I think the story of Jesus is just below the surface. Because in a real sense, what is happening to John anticipates what will happen to Jesus. Jesus, too, will be arrested. Like John, Jesus, too, will be rejected. Jesus, too, will be executed. And Jesus, too, will have his followers come so that his body may be buried, right? And so I think there's, there's a subtle comparison going on here. And even, even in a real sense, these stories of rejection are building to bring our attention, to prepare us for the work of the cross, for what is coming. And, of course, what is coming is a story that will ultimately have a different ending. Because even as all of that rejection builds in the life of Christ, and even as all of that rejection will ultimately lead to the cross, the one who is rejected will ultimately be raised and triumph. That story will have a different ending. Interestingly, the apostle P. 
Peter, who, who arguably is a major source for Mark's gospel, would, would write it this way, right? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in the cross, the ultimate powers of rejection are defeated. And so for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to understand that that Jesus absorbed our rejection. Jesus absorbed the reality of rejection. He absorbed the ultimate rejection so that we might experience God's acceptance. And remember a moment ago as we started, we talked about kind of the different places we experience rejection. And, and even in, in, in raising some examples, for some of us, there were particular examples that came to mind. For some of us, maybe even things we're going through right now. And even as we talked about that, we talked about even as, as followers of Christ, what that can look like in our lives, what it can look like in culture. But as you think about the reality of what rejection has looked like and may look like in your life, you need to understand that in absorbing ultimate rejection, Jesus now offers ultimate acceptance. And when we are a follower of Christ, the power of rejection has now been disarmed. When we are follower of Christ, we no longer have to fear the rejection of others. So Jesus says, look, this is my experience. I'm being rejected. This is going to be your experience as well. I'm going to send you out. I'm going to send you out to be a part of my mission. But understand that that happens At times, people won't accept. People will look at you differently. People will think differently. That's going to be part of the journey, but don't let that slow you down because I have taken rejection to the cross and I have robbed it of its power. That's the invitation of this text. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we do come to this passage, we we are confronted with the reality of rejection in Jesus' life and in different ways. Different people here, we process that issue of rejection differently. Some things come to mind. But I pray we would see that as we're moving through this book, it's ultimately going to take us to the cross, ultimately going to take us to the place where ultimate rejection is defeated. And Father, may that encourage us. May we be challenged, therefore, to hold on to the gospel in such a way that our lives are attractive and that and we're, we're willing to live out our faith in tangible ways, recognizing at times other people are, are just not going to understand it or not make sense of it. But can we do that boldly? Because your work of defeating ultimate rejection has created the ultimate offer of acceptance. And it's in that truth that we pray this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.
now in response to the message, would you stand with us and celebrate our living hope? I could. 